Okay, good evening everybody. Welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. My name is Corey Olson, the Tolkien Professor, back for you, with you as always on Tuesday evenings uh, as uh, we jump back into the text here. Uh, soon, in a minute, we'll jump back into the text. Uh, good to see everybody. Apologize to folks uh, who often follow on Twitter. Last week, my feed just like crashed in the middle. No idea what happened there. The app just went. Apologize for that. Um, but um, anyway, yeah, many of you, of course, uh, would just uh, were just with me uh, as I just came from the State of the University address. Just delivered that in the last couple hours here. Um, that was really fun, kind of doing some storytelling and talking about where Signum came from and how that emerged uh, and... Um, um, and how we, uh, uh, how we got to where we are and, you know, and where we, um, uh, where we are headed over, uh, over the next uh, few years here, including of course, uh, and kind of contextualizing the launch of our brand new program, Signum Path, uh, which we have just launched and officially opened registration for this week. Um, so, um. Yeah, so uh, Arahad, that was that was recorded. If you missed it, it's okay. Or the State of the University address. You can hear the storytelling uh, and uh, get more details about what's going on there. Um, we're going to be posting it to our YouTube channel. It should be up, I hope, by tomorrow. Um, uh, of course, I'd be processing it right now, but I got other things to do. We're going to talk about uh, the Council of Elrond. So, um, anyway, so. Uh, so yeah, we're 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 we definitely not too late to do that. I see Emma Thorne was saying you're in the middle of watching the State of the University address right now. There you go. You can multitask, right? Have me saying two different things simultaneously. Um, that's efficient. Not sure how it'll work out long term, but I think that's all pretty cool. Um, anyway, so uh, <laughs> anyway, we'll uh, we'll we'll see. But I do commend that to you. Um, I like to you know share not just the you know. Like latest updates, I mean, you know that in the beginning of class and stuff, I try to make announcements to keep folks, uh, you know, kind of in touch with what's happening right now. Um, but I like to kind of back up a little bit and talk about where things are and where we're headed, the big picture and how everything fits in and big news and things like that. So State of the University address is always really fun in that way. So we'll be we'll be posting that on YouTube. How many years is it now? Uh, Gilgamthir asks... Prayer. Uh, no, uh, a bunch. We're actually completing the ninth year uh, in the history of Signum University. So we're um, uh, we are we're, we're we're getting there. We're getting old. Been doing this for a while now. Um, uh, but this is really uh, this is really the crucial and exciting moment for Signum. We have uh, we have existed for a long time, right? We've been we've been developing. We have worked out our proof of concept. Uh, I think just triumphantly over the last nine years. Uh, and now we're ready. We're ready to, uh, to sort of step forward uh, and begin filling those sort of larger, um, larger gaps, larger roles uh, that uh, I think that, that Signum is really well suited to fill. That's what I was kind of talking about and explaining in the State of the University address. So um, anyway, uh, cool. Cool. Um, uh, so, uh, uh, so awesome. Yeah. Arahad. Yeah. Gra glad you discovered us, even if it was recently and that's great. Don't worry. Uh, though, uh, you know, we've been going on for a while before you found us. We'll still be going on for a while after this. I certainly hope so. Uh, there's, uh, certainly much yet to come and lots to catch up on. Uh, so, uh, there we go. Um, 
Awesome. Okay. So let's, uh, well, okay. Before I get back into the text, have to do the announcement. Signum Path, right? That's the big thing. So our Signum Path program, which is our professional development program uh, for what are commonly called soft skills, what we call foundational skills, Um, writing, reading, uh, uh, queer communication, interpersonal skills. These are the things that are really useful in any job that uh, you can possibly have and which a lot of people really suffer uh, from you know, needing some brushing up on, uh, and we have a resource for you, Signum Path. So go to path.signumuniversity.org. The website looks something like this. Um, uh, and I've been sort of showing you this. We filled out a bunch of things here. You can read more. Go to our program tab here. You can read more about our individual uh, program. Uh, that's what we're just opening registration for now. So registration is current open, currently open. You can click on the register button up here to go straight to our registration page and you can register for any of our courses uh, here. You can see we have our courses listed for the next three months. We're doing our four badges, rolling them out over the course one class uh, per uh, month, right? Which are our month long terms over the next three months. Uh, so you can take any one or more than one of our badges here uh, in these next three months. And then we'll be repeating that cycle and adding, I hope, at least one more badge uh, for the next time when we start it up again in September. So these courses are going to come around uh, fairly frequently. Um, but I encourage you uh, to look into these. These are going to be um, a lot of fun. Yeah, cool. Awesome. Uh, so you're looking, definitely looking at one of the July classes. Fantastic. Um, yeah, so no, there's uh, uh, there's a lot to... There's a lot to be looking at here, and uh, I think that a lot of people are really going to benefit a lot. I'm really happy uh, to be able to come in and help folks who are looking to uh, to improve their careers, to kind of reimagine themselves, to help take the next step, right, uh, in, in getting uh, to where you want to be, to help to set yourself apart from others who are also looking for jobs right now. It's a really tough environment. So, uh, you know, this is a way that uh, should be an accessible and an affordable way uh, to help to, to, to really invest in yourself and, and, and set yourself aside. So anyway, that's um, that's what we're working on indefinitely. Um, yeah, uh, Tony talking about pitching this uh, to your agency. Yeah, uh, I can believe there are federal agencies out there whose employees perhaps need this. And yeah, uh, there are a couple different ways in which you can get your company involved. We do do, if you go to our corporate skills training page, um, we do programs which we customize uh, for companies. So we'll come in and, and, and a whole group, um, you know, a whole team uh, can take these courses together. Uh, that's a really, really great option we're doing that uh right now with uh, uh with with a company it's 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 just, it's a it's a really fun uh kind of program and we customize these very closely to the work that you're actually doing uh in your uh in your workplace so that's one option uh tony for companies what they can do but another thing of course is if your company would, would just be interested in um, encouraging individuals to do this right they can still gain a lot of value even if you don't have a group program for the whole for a whole team or something like that. Um, but yeah, for your company to encourage folks to take these classes themselves and, and build up some of these skills and reimburse folks for the classes upon completion, that's a really good uh, model as well. So yeah. Anyway, lots of um, uh, lots of options here. Lots of ways that we can uh, that we can help. If you uh, if you are if you uh, you know encourage your your human resources director, your uh, you know your your training manager, uh, you know if we, 
whichever one of those kinds of things you've got uh, at your company, encourage them to reach out to them. We'd love to talk with them. Um, we can set them up and, and uh, uh, let them take one of our classes, uh, really to kind of see what PATH is about uh, and you know maybe see about establishing a program that can really help a bunch of people at your company. We would, uh, we'd love to do that. So anyway, just... Wanting to share that all this stuff is open. Uh, if you have any questions, if you're if you're wanting to know how can I talk to folks at work about this, or you, know, you have a particular question about our courses, or the timing, or the schedule, or availability, or whatever else, go to our contact page here and just you know fill in the contact form quick, and uh, we'll be able to get that and get right back to you. So, excellent. That's our big thing. We are officially you know we've we've. We've cut the ribbon. We've opened the doors, right? We are ready to accept students in the Signum Path program, and I am delighted about this. Um, on the subject of other things that I am excited uh, to, uh, uh, to, to, do, to do is uh, get back to the Council of Elrond here. So it's time for the halflings to stand forth, right? Um, uh, and we've got, we had Elrond last week. We ended with Elrond's sentence, right? Um, uh, you know, that too shall be told, uh, he says uh, to Boromir in response to Boromir's query, right? Boromir's uh, uh, changing of the subject, as we discussed last time, his non-response, in a sense, right, to, um, uh, to Aragorn's long speech and dramatic conclusion. Um, <laughs> you're right, uh, uh, it's um, it's it's time for the halflings forth to stand. You're right, absolutely. Um, but uh, yes, where where we see Elrond briefly rest back control over his meeting, right? But after his one sentence, of course, he is immediately interrupted again, but not by Boromir this time. Um, but not yet, I beg, Master," cried Bilbo. "Already the sun is climbing to noon, and I feel the need of something to strengthen me." I had not named you, said Elrond, smiling, but I do so now. Come, tell us your tale, and if you have not yet cast your story into verse, you may tell it in plain words. The briefer, the sooner you shall, shall you be refreshed. Very well, said Bilbo. I will do as you bid. Um, and, uh, you know, okay, we've talked before about Elrond's skill at... Um, uh, Elrond's skill at hobbitry, right? This is pretty good. He does it again, right? We saw him really giving it back to Bilbo uh, in the Hall of Fire, right? And here we see him doing the same thing again. I think this is really, uh, really pretty awesome. Pretty, pretty well done. And it's even clearer here. We were talking last time, you know, there was a little bit of uncertainty. You know, we were, I think we were all kind of agreed. We were, we were, uh, um, we were all inclined uh, to understand, to hear his words to Bilbo in the Hall of Fire as hobbitry. But, you know, it's possible to read them in, in another way. Um, you don't, the context, we didn't get any clear, obvious external cues that is external to the words he was saying themselves, right? Which, absolutely proved uh, that he was engaging in banter, right? His smile here, I think, is a pretty clear giveaway, right? I had not named you, said Elrond, smiling. Um, he's, um, he's pretty clear, 
right? I think pretty clear on the affection with which he's speaking to Bilbo. Um, I, I had not named you, but I do so now. Come tell us your tale. And if you have not yet cast your story into verse, you may tell it in plain words. The briefer, the sooner shall you be refreshed. Um, if you have not yet cast your story into verse, um, it is delightful um, uh, as you were uh, suggesting, Arahad, that uh, uh, Bilbo has developed a reputation as a poet even among elves, right? Um, but of course, again, I think it's pretty clear that he's teasing him for that, right? I mean, the 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 yet, right, is the to, for me, the kicker of that whole sentence, right? If you have not yet cast your story into verse, right? It's not a question of if Bilbo has written an epic poem about his own life, right? The question is only when, right? Has it happened yet or not? Are you still working on that, the poetic version, Bilbo? Because if you are, you can say it in plain words, right? Um... Exactly. Belongsman says, can he finish it? Uh, yeah, exactly. That's the real, that's the real question. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I think that's really, um, um, that's really pretty, pretty fun. Um, and JJ says, considering how many different versions Tolkien wrote for some of his works, I'm kind of surprised we don't have a version of the Hobbit in verse. It is interesting, JJ, right? I mean, I think in some ways that, the poetic, imp- I mean, it's speaking just for a second about Tolkien, I mean, I know you're sort of joking, but but of course it is really true, right, that Bilbo uh, shares, you know, his creator's uh, poetic impulse. Uh, Tolkien does have the poetic impulse and did, of course, cast his several of his stories into epic verse, right? I mean, he wrote long, you know, long style narrative poetry was one of Tolkien's things. He really did like that. Um and um, uh, anyway, so he um, he did that. But when he did that, he always, of course, did that with his earlier stuff, right? It's the Lay of Lathian, the, the Baron and Luthien story, uh, and the Children of Hurin, right? The story of Turin and Turinbar. Um, those are the ones that he did uh, in, in epic verse. Um, I doubt he would have been tempted to redo The Hobbit, uh, not because... He didn't want to redo it, uh, but because it was not quite, um, uh, you know, not quite suitable for Rivendell, as Bilbo might have said, right? Um, not exactly the kind of thing uh, to do epic poetry about, uh, really. But also, um, I would say, I think that a lot of his poetic impulse... Um, the, po- the, the impulse that might have manifested itself in a poetic rendition of these stories, um, had it not been given other outlet, right, is really fulfilled in a lot of the poetry that he writes along the way. Um, uh, if he had been, even, I mean, if you think about even the moments, right, think about the moments which um, themselves seem to invite, you know, epic poetry treatment uh, in the story it kind of sneaks in a little bit, right? Like, for instance, the moment when Theoden rides forth to meet his destiny and to bring light back to the field of Pelennor, right? Uh, in, in meeting his own heroic death along the way. There's a poem about that, right? Um, 
I, you know, thinking about the, you know, the Mounds of Munberg uh, song, right, that is recited at length um, after the battle, you can see this poetic impulse uh, sort of creeping in. He's not just, uh, you know, in some places he's kind of dragging in bits of verse that he's had from before and likes to find ways to incorporate and, uh, you know, kind of make it a Do like, uh, you know, niggle in the story, leaf by niggle, and tack them on around the edges of the story. Things like the troll song, things like uh, the Man in the Moon uh, song uh, in the inn, um, things like the Oliphant poem. Um, you know, there are lots of things like that that he wrote a long, long time ago and manages to kind of attach, right, and fit within. But some of it, I think, really is he does get that poetic impulse still uh, while he's um, while he's writing the story. And so poems emerge. And I think that's why there are so many poems in The Lord of the Rings. Um, um, uh, The Where is the Horse and the Rider poem? Uh, No, it's not one of those. Um, uh, No, the Where the Horse, the Where uh, is the Horse and the Rider poem? is really interesting to me um, because, of course, it's a very direct adaptation of an existing Anglo-Saxon poem. To me, there is no place where... Yeah, exactly, from that passage in The Wanderer. Um, there's no place in Tolkien's works where we can see him, I think, more explicitly kind of wrestling with the Anglo-Saxonity, right? The Anglo-Saxonness of the Rohirrim, he can say in Appendix F, I think it's F, right, uh, that they're not the Anglo-Saxons, right? Don't make any mistake. Nothing to see here, right? These are not... Don't think that these are Anglo-Saxons. He can say that. Um, He can't make anybody believe it, but he can say it. Um, uh, And yet, uh, Anglo-Saxonicity, you're absolutely right, Ambrosius Aurelianus. Thank you for that. Um, However, there is some truth also in what he's saying. Like, he's, he's... it's not true that they simply are the Anglo-Saxons, like historically the Anglo-Saxons, that like everything that is true of the Rohirrim is true of the Anglo-Saxons. No, that's not the case, in fact, right? They still are the Rohirrim. They still exist within his world and are integrated within his world in various ways. Um, so, but nevertheless, they're very closely modeled on the Anglo-Saxons. So if you want a place to really think, like, where are both the similarities and the differences, right? Where uh, where do we see the continuities between Anglo-Saxon culture and the Rohirrim, but also the places where the Rohirrim don't go in the same direction? To me, that poem, the Where Now is the Horse and the Rider poem, is where I'd go. If I wanted to write an essay uh, comparing and contrasting the Anglo-Saxons and... Uh, uh, and the Rohirrim in Tolkien's imagination, I would do a close reading of the Where Now is the Horse and the Rider poem. That's absolutely what I would do. Um, uh, so, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so yeah, so that's a fascinating poem. And it's, it's so it's not one, it's not like he had, uh, he'd already done that translation years before for, you know, and published it in a different context and brought that in like the others. Um, but um, yeah, yeah, no, it's, uh, it's sort of, uh, it's sort of different. Um, yeah, exactly, Mariel. As a scholar of the Anglo-Saxons, among others, Tolkien could not countenance an equal sign between the two. Yes. And it's also true, Mariel, that there are some of the things that he incorporates in his depiction of the Rohirrim, which are some of his not really provable, 
By valid scholarly means theories about the Anglo-Saxons, things he couldn't get away with publishing in academic journals, but which he still really believed to be true of the Anglo-Saxons, but he can't prove it, right? So he includes them in his fiction instead, but he's got to, like, back down from that, right? He can't, you know, he can't, like, let his academic reputation rest upon saying, this is totally, this is the true story, right? So uh, so some of the distancing is a little bit of... Um, covering himself right um to say like don't you know don't 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 put too much don't take too much out of this right even though like secretly kind of yeah believed those things um but he was a very he was a very careful scholar uh so he didn't want to that's why he didn't publish those things because he knew he couldn't prove it um but um anyway yeah uh so okay uh (laughs) <laughs> but what were we talking about? Okay, Bilbo and poetry. That's what we were talking about. The poetic impulse. All right, so backing up and retracing my steps to where I wandered off the path, like Gandalf said, you never should, uh, and Bjorn also. Um, okay, uh, so if you have not yet cast your story into verse, again, it's a given that eventually Bilbo is going gonna, is gonna to make a poetic version of his story. Um, I also love the phrase plain words, right, in contrast uh, to poetry. Um, That seems to me a genuinely insightful phrase by Elrond. And I don't just mean insightful into the nature of poetry, right, poetry versus prose, but into Bilbo as well, right? Um, I think that he's exactly hit it on the head there, right? That to Bilbo, telling the story, just telling the story in prose, uh, compared to reciting a, a, a poetic rendition of the story, I think plain words is almost exactly the phrase that Bilbo himself would likely use. Um, and that, the use of that adjective, plain, to refer to the words here by Elrond seems to me to really open up an entire like insight into Hobbit poetics, you know, um, that not that, that again, I don't hear Elrond speaking for himself. I don't think that poetry versus, you know, verse versus plain words using the vocabulary that he uses there necessarily tells us how elves look at poetry. I think it tells us what he understands about how Bilbo looks at poetry. This sounds um, very much like how Bilbo would talk. Um, Flamifer says, I don't think elves ever do not care much for poetry. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, I, I don't, I, I agree. I don't think that any of the elves present would object to a poetic version uh, of, uh, of the story. Uh, in fact, if you think about it, um, if you think about it, think about the experience that Frodo had um, in the Hall of Fire, right? Think about the experience that Bilbo had in his parlor at Bag End in Chapter One of The Hobbit when the dwarves sang their song. And then think about the experience that Frodo had in the Hall of Fire that we recall when he was in that sort of out-of-body experience when he was enchanted, right, by the songs that were happening around him. Many of the elves might well think, if you ask them, they might think this whole 
prose narration thing is that this is a pretty blunt instrument to be using for this, right? Why can't somebody just sing us a good song about all this stuff so that we can all just see it happening before our eyes, right? Can we get some fairy and drama going on here, right? Wouldn't that speed this process along a little bit? Wouldn't that help us all understand this a lot better? Um, so, yeah, I suspect many of the elves might think that way. Um, exactly, Zach. The Council of Elrond, the musical. Why has it not been done? Oh, my goodness. Um, but, um, but yeah, absolutely. So it's not even that I think it would be inefficient, right? I, I think I absolutely think that all of the elves. Do you think we should do a reconstruction of this? At Mythmoot, yes. <laughs> At Mythmoot will do... We'll do the Council of Elrond the musical. That's absolutely, that's great. Um, but uh, anyhow, yeah. So, um, uh, uh, yeah, and, and uh, honestly, obviously, Tony, I mean, it kind of goes without saying that if it were a rap musical, that would reach the acme of the linguistic arts, right? I mean, obviously. I think that pretty much goes without saying. Um, but um, anyhow, so... Uh, whoops, <laughs> sorry, I lost the slide. <laughs> We've gone backwards to the title slide. Um, so, uh, so yeah, but, so again, that, that contrast between verse and plain words, um, it, it strikes me as really as, as, as essential. I couldn't prove it, right? I couldn't prove that he is speaking to Bilbo's frame of mind or to Bilbo's condition rather than voicing his own view and his own opinion or even, again, the Elvish perspective. It just... Um, uh, it just sounds like... Um, uh, it just sounds... It, it sounds very hobbity. It sounds very hobbity. Um, exactly. An appeal to hobbit to hobbitness is, is just what that sounds like to me, Tony. Um... So again, that itself is a sort of an interesting thesis. Um, tell it in plain words, as opposed to casting it into verse. Cast, of course, is another interesting piece of vocabulary there. The verb that he uses, cast your story into verse. Um, shaped it, right? Cast... Yes, like one casts metal. Exactly, JJ. So this is not cast like a fishing rod, right? Um, you know, you're not casting, you know, chucking your story into a pool of verse. Um, this is, uh, he's using a word um, about shaping things, right? About forming things. But forming things with a cast is interesting, right? Um, he could say if you have not, you know, shaped your story into verse, right? If you have not, um, I don't know what built it into verse. There's a bunch of, um, um, there's a bunch of, uh, 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 different verbs that he, you know, metaphors spun it into verse. Sure. Go gone through that works. Um, uh, forged it into verse JJ. Yeah, you absolutely could do that. Now, Arahad was wondering and praise Moyer was suggesting too, um, could cast referring to like you cast a spell. Hang on a second. Somebody who has the e-text. Is the verb cast ever applied to the noun spell in The Lord of the Rings? Does that happen? 
The word spell is used. Does anyone ever actually cast a spell in the Lord of the Rings? Is that a thing? I mean, I know it's a thing, but is it a thing in the Lord of the Rings? Is that a piece of vocabulary that they use? I feel like it is, but I can't remember. I can't put my finger on exactly where it happens. Yeah. So those of you who have VTest, look at it. I would search, what I would do is search for cast and then see where it's used as a verb, which I think would be most of the time. Um, uh, cast a spell on us from a distance. There you go. That's, 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 a, that's, that's Mary, right? Mary or, or Pippin? Yeah. Yeah. Um, good. Thank you, Mad Violinist. I was pretty sure it did occur, but I couldn't remember it. Um, yes, of the hobbits in, uh, being concerned about going, or wondering about appearing before Saruman um, on the steps of Isengard. Okay. Good. Is there another? Yeah, at the word, yeah, spell doesn't occur that often, Flamifer. I mean, it's not, um, it's another reason why I was pretty sure that that phrase was very, was, was quite unusual. Um, yes, most of the time cast is used, uh, as several of you are pointing out, is in the sense of throwing, right? Not specifically, like I said, of a fishing line, right? But like cast the ring into the fire, of course, is a, is a, prominent phrase, right? Casting light into things, absolutely. Um, uh, right, Gimli says he may have other things that uh, Saruman may have other things to cast, which sounds like Gimli is making a pun about the casting of spells, right? Um, right, because Gim- Gimli says, do not let him put a spell on us. Right, exactly, yeah, to put it on us. You don't put it, you cast it, right? Um, or you don't cast it, you put it. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Okay. Well, exactly. No, you cast a fishing line in the same way. You're you're throwing something out, right? Um, yeah, yeah. And you often cast things into, and that's a throwing metaphor. Now, I don't think that the casting... When you cast a spell... Why do you cast a spell? Why do we use that verb about spells? Okay, it doesn't happen... So that one time... Um, Will he cast a spell? Will he? Uh, uh, will he cast a spell on us? Um, when? And it's—is it Pippin who asks that of Gandalf before they appear before Saruman? I guess yes. Yeah. So I, I guess you're throwing—you're throwing, you're throwing a magic at somebody. I guess when you're casting a spell. Um, I suppose. Yeah, see, uh, that's Brandon. That's exactly what I was just getting around to wondering. What is the fundamental metaphor that underlies that phrase? Were they thinking uh, they, whoever first used the verb "cast" and attached it to the uh, to the noun "spell"? Um, were they thinking 
of a metaphor a throwing metaphor, like casting a net or casting dice or casting um, a line, right? Uh, or casting a light. Um, or were they casting um, in the sense of cast your story into verse here, which I believe to be a fundamentally um, craft-oriented, like using a, a mold or a cast. Um, you do cast runes. That is also true. Yeah, exactly. Is it so? Is it is it throwing or shaping? Is that what it's primarily about? Hang on, did I miss one, Angus? Let's see. Uh, um, it's true that people do sometimes say cast a spell over someone, which would imply a a net metaphor, right? Like you're casting a net. Um, And even, of course, the use of the word on, cast a spell on us, like Pippin says, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So... What I would like to see is, I'm sure the OED lists the usage of cast as in cast a spell. I bet you that's, there's an entry for that in the OED, and I would love to see the historical examples they give of that, how early they date that usage. Here's my real question. We don't have... We don't have Gary Gygax to blame for this, do we? I'm wondering. Um, Spellcasting, of course, has been a, a core part of Dungeons & Dragons vocabulary since the first edition, right? Um, I'm not saying he invented it. He obviously didn't. Pippin uses it. But is that why that's so popular now? Um, yeah, I wonder... He did crib a bunch of things from Jack Fan, so of course Mikey cribs a lot from Tolkien, so I would not have been a bit surprised uh, had he kind of pounced on like that one reference and decided, yeah, spellcasting, that's the thing. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, oh, there's so many things, Arahad. Uh, and oh my goodness, it's like, if you're a younger person... Uh, and have only played like, you know, third, fourth, fifth edition of D&D, you'll be even less sensitive to this than if you, if you, I mean, go, go, I mean, goodness, skim through the monster manual or the player's handbook of the first edition. If you can find a PDF online or something. Um, oh my goodness. The monster manual is hilarious. Um, it's like everything in Tolkien in almost exactly the words that Tolkien uses to, it's like just narrowly avoiding copyright infringement. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, um, anyway, sorry. The historical question of when, uh, cast became popularized as the verb to use, uh, uh, concerning spells is somewhat beside the point. It is interesting because, um, 
uh, I, um, the reason we got onto this tangent is because I'm trying to figure out if it's appropriate, um, to say when he says, have you not cast your story into verse, um, is that a magic metaphor? Is he, Elrond himself, invoking a spell metaphor? Um, which, of course, like poetry as spell, poetry as magic spell, I mean, there's nothing that isn't totally, like, normal about that, in a sense, right? Um, so, I don't think, yeah, musical, that's where I'm kind of going, too. Um, I, I think no. Uh, I don't think it is, and I, mostly it would be my, um, um, it would be my, it, w- it would be the into. Oh, uh, Edith, the place where uh, Pippin says cast a spell is uh, when he's talking to Gandalf right before they meet, when, uh, right before they meet Saruman, when they're going to in the, the voice of Saruman chapter, um, and Pippin asks him um, if he will cast a spell on us from a distance. Um, and Gandalf says that the latter is more likely, right? Um, but, um, yeah, I, I, I have to think that, um, uh, oh, interesting. Nahor says the 1956 song called I Put a Spell on You, um, would suggest that Cast a Spell regained, uh, gained more recent popularity or why not name the song I Cast a Spell on You. Yeah, that's interesting. That is an interesting little data point there. Um, uh, yeah, interesting. Um, but anyhow, okay. Point is, I don't think it's about magic. I think it's a crafting metaphor. But so pursue it then, right? If he's using a crafting metaphor, if he's thinking about cast in terms of mold, right? A mold or a, uh, a form, right? Um, into becomes a really interesting preposition there, right? Because then verse is the mold, right? It is the cast um, into which the story is placed. So the story becomes the liquid material, right? The liquid or molten material that is poured into the cast. Um, And verse, poetry, is the mold which shapes and provides the, which seems to me a very good metaphor, right? Um, and a very interesting one. Yeah, uh, Enoch Arden was just uh, 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 giving a definition of cast in exactly this way, uh, to shape metal or other material by pouring it into a mold while molten. Exactly, exactly. Um, yes, ah, Matt is pointing to early usage of the word cast for horoscopes. That is interesting. Um, uh, yes, you do cast horoscopes, and that is a very common usage. Um, I wonder if that influences, uh, uh, and you cast lots, but that's about throwing, usually, I think. Uh, it's like a dice roll, right, when you cast lots. Um, so I think that's another throwing thing. Um, anyway, sorry. (laughs) Okay, all right, all right. Anyway, point is that, um, uh, you... I, I, I do think it's definitely the crafting metaphor, the mold or cast. Um, uh, so the alternative 
is to pour his story, if he has already poured his story into the cast, into the mold um, of verse, uh, then he can display it in that form, right? Otherwise, he can just tell it in plain words. Um, um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, uh, yeah. Ah, oh, wait a second. Maybe we're misremembering that he doesn't use the word cast there. He, he does that even Pippin says put a spell. Ah, okay. Okay, yeah. All right. So even there, that's where I think that's the one I was thinking of when I said I thought it was used. Uh, uh, so, Chris, when you were remembering that, that's what I was thinking, too. Um, I thought it might have been used somewhere else, too. But, yeah. No, that's great. Okay, so he doesn't even use the phrase there. Interesting. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah, right. We may be conflating it with Gimli's use of cast later on. In which case, Gimli's cast would be a pun, but perhaps an unintended pun on his part. Yeah. Yeah. Um, right, because Gimli says put as well. Uh, it says put when he talks about spells, but it is talking about him casting other things, like other things besides Palatiri out the window, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, interesting. Cool. Um, yeah, Fredrock Paper, I do assume that casting horoscopes does come from, th- like, casting bones to tell the future, that kind of thing. Yes, that, um, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> It is. Um, yeah, good. Good. Okay. Sorry. I'm fixating on this sentence here just because, I, as I say, I think it's a very insightful sentence from Elrond uh, into Hobbitness, but as someone who is very interested in the poems and in not only the poems as they appear in the text, but poetry as it operates within the story and the relationship within this story and in the story, like as part of the story itself, um, between prose and poetry. It's something that I'm um, really curious about, uh, how to build more. So I, I'm, I'm fascinated in this sentence as a really interesting data point in the sense that we rarely get we get a lot of poetry happening, but people talking about poetry is especially interesting, right? Um, because it tells us not just, we don't just get to see examples of what they do when they sing songs or recite poems, but to hear them talk about like what poems mean, what poetry means, and how it works, and how it contrasts with plain words, right? Again, that... Um, the implication that poetry is that like being ornate, being decorative or decorated in some way, um, as opposed to plain, is um, uh, really interesting, right? Not something that I would necessarily have felt safe assuming exactly. Um, uh, so, anyway, that's... Um, uh, the primary reason why I'm why I'm interested to kind of ferret out the usage here and how it's appropriate. And now keep in mind the reason I've been focusing on the historical thing um, 
and looking at the historical usage of these words because that's always really important, right? It's not enough. To, so, like, the, 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 what spawned that whole inquiry, right, was the question, could he mean cast your story into verse in the same sense in which you cast a spell, right? The, how do you answer that question? You answer that question by looking at the historical usage. Is that a phrase? Or is, that, is that usage of the word cast something that was, A, popular at the time that Tolkien was writing? Is that, is that a, a phrase he could be expected to, be, to use here? And the first thing you do, the first way you look, is, is that used ever anywhere else, right? Do we have evidence from within this text? Because that is by far the best evidence. Do we have evidence from within this text of the phrase being used in that way, of the word cast having that implication? Because if not, and if, if, we have, if we don't have reason to think that in Tolkien's mind, in the mouths of Lord of the Rings characters, casting a spell is a thing, if we don't have reason to think that, then we don't have any good reason to think that that's a legitimate reading. It's one of the ways in which we can establish um, a solid argument for behind an interpretation uh, for a reading. This has been your um, explanation for why, if you always believed that literary analysis was purely subjective, you were wrong. <laughs> There is objective, right and wrong. There's evidence that you can put forward. Some interpretations are stronger than others. And this is one of the ways in which you do that. You can say, the word cast makes me think of spells. Cool. Great. That's really interesting. I'm glad to hear that for you. But do we have any reason to believe that that's the case? Do we have any reason to believe that that is a reading that is germane to this story? And that's one of the ways in which we um, we establish that, right? Because um, you can... You can find objective data here for this kind of thing. Um, and, uh, oh man, JJ, this is one of the things that always really bothered me. Uh, and I don't know, yes, I do know which bothered me more when st teachers or when students talk this way. I think that a lot of like English teachers, like high school English teachers and stuff who talked about literature this way, I think that they were trying to make it more accessible and meaningful, right? That like students will read works of literature and feel like this is not relevant to my life. And so you counter that, I guess, by saying, hey, like, it's about, like, you relating to it personally. And, like, what it means to you is what it's important. And that always really drove me crazy. Um, and still still does. Um, but um, anyway, yeah. Um, <laughs> there we go. <laughs> now that I've sufficiently pontificated on that point. Um, but uh, anyhow, okay. Uh, interesting. Uh, Didi Frazier saying, do I think Tolkien was debating whether or not Bilbo should tell his story in prose here and decided not to? Is there a lost the Hobbit poem? Uh, no evidence for it. Um, uh, the, I don't think, I'm pretty sure there is not a version of this chapter that includes even a speculation or a, a gesture towards Bilbo actually saying this in verse. Um, but right, Matt Violinus says, and thus you dismiss all of postmodernism. Not all. Not all. Uh, most, but not all. <laughs> There's much that we can learn from postmodernism. But I especially find myself learning fruitfully and productively from postmodernism when I look at it in the rearview mirror. Um, then I can learn most, I feel. Uh, but, uh, anyway, <laughs> um, okay. Um, so, uh, 
uh, <laughs> let's let's uh, let's move on before I get myself into more trouble. Um, okay, um, <laughs> so. <laughs> Gogonthier says all we need now is a Boethius sidetrack and I've got bingo. Oh, fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. All right. All right. Moving on. Moving on. The briefer, the sooner shall you be refreshed. And yes, this is both very funny of Elrond and, of course, very clever. Right? How do you keep Bilbo from nattering on forever? Uh, Notice uh, Elrond seems to be taking steps to prevent the complete hijacking of his meeting any further, right? That what that digression we just had was productive, and it provided a segue uh, to introduce Aragorn, right, and to do the big Aragorn reveal, which I'm sure was on his agenda anyway, right? So Elrond is doing some excellent um, adaptation, right, uh, fitting in with things and making sure we're getting around to stuff. He's not just uh, sticking slavishly to his original plan. I think he's doing a fairly good job uh, of, uh, uh, of, of running the meeting here. But, um, uh, but yes, he's, um, his, his little dig at Bilbo's um, feeling the need of something to strengthen me, right? Like, there's no way I'm gonna, you know, give serve lunch first and then let you start talking Bilbo. Yeah, no, no, no. Let's have lunch be the end point, right? Uh, looming over you here. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, good. Ha! Green Great Dragon says, digressions? What are those? I know, right? Um, it's a good thing. It's a good thing. No one, no one is uh, holding my lunch out in the distance in, uh, uh, and uh, only letting me get to it after we get to the next slide. Anyhow, okay. Oh wait, I guess actually that kind of is what's happening. Nevertheless, no, nevertheless. All right. Very well, said Bilbo. I will do as you bid, but I will now tell the true story. And if some here have heard me tell it otherwise, he looked sidelong at Glowen. I ask them to forget it and forgive me. I only wished to claim the treasure as my very own in those days, and to be rid of the name of thief that was put on me. But perhaps I understand things a little better now. Anyway, this is what happened. Um, I love the, um, anyway, this is what happened, right? I mean, talk about taking up Elrond's invitation to tell it in plain words, right? This is what happened uh, is a very humble introduction to Bilbo's great story, right? Um, and, uh, and yeah, Angrist, absolutely, this is the example of the master of retcon strikes again, right? Clearly. Um, uh, if some here have heard me tell it otherwise, I don't even remember how many years it was before I knew what the heck Bilbo was talking about when he said that, right? Because, of course, Tolkien assumes uh, in writing this that the majority of the readers of The Lord of the Rings will have read The Hobbit and will have read it in the first edition, right? And so we'll be familiar with the old version of the story. And let me not make an assumption that 100% of the people listening to this now know that, right? So the very brief explanation, in the first edition of The Hobbit, uh, Bilbo did not receive the... um, uh, didn't you know the the, the the riddle game did not end uh, the way that it ended uh, in the Hobbit that we most of us all know and have read for the last sixty years? Um, in the original version of the Hobbit, um, Bilbo uh, the 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 terms of the game 
with Gollum, the riddle game, were that if uh, Bilbo won, Gollum would give it a present. And he goes to give him the present. Like he's going to, and he means to give him the ring. He means to give him his magic ring, and he goes to look for the ring, and he finds that he doesn't have the ring, and he's really upset. Gollum is really upset because he doesn't want to cheat at the game, and he's really afraid that Bilbo's going to accuse him of, you know, of, of not keeping his promises, and Gollum would hate to think that. Um, so he comes back, and he's super apologetic, and he apologizes again and again to Bilbo, and he offers, uh, and he offers him fish instead of the present that he'd offered him, and Bilbo's like, no thanks, and that's when Bilbo proposes, maybe you could just show me the way out instead, and Gollum says, okay, and he shows him the way out, and they shake hands, and that's the end, right? Um, of course, after writing the Lord of the Rings, after really even just beginning the Lord of the Rings, it was very clear to Tolkien that that version of the story would never do. Um, and so he rewrote chapter five, and that's where we get the Baggins, we hates it forever version of the story. Um, but of course, Tolkien knows that his audience who's going to be reading this book that he's writing right now are going to be familiar with the other version of the story, so he works the change into this story itself and has Bilbo say, if some of you have heard me tell it, this is not going to be the version of the story that you've heard. Um, the way it was, the, the way it was printed in the published Hobbit is a lie. It's the false version that Bilbo told under the influence of the ring. Perhaps I understand things a little better now, he says. Right. Um, uh, fantastic. So yes, there are a bunch of people also present in the room who have no, will have no idea what Bilbo is referring to. Right. Um, um, exactly, JJ. This is also why back in chapter two, Frodo tells, or when Gandalf, when Frodo tells Gandalf that Bilbo told him the story about how he found the ring and Gandalf says, which story I wonder. Right. And Frodo says, oh, not the one that he told the dwarves and put in his book. Right. No, he told me the real story. And I was confused by that. I remember as a child, I'm like, I I don't what version I assumed being a careful reader, even a reasonably careful reader as a child. I assumed that what he meant was so. You'll remember that in chapter six of The Hobbit, when Bilbo is reunited with the dwarves uh, on the on the eastern slopes of the mountains, um, he tells them a version of the story and skips like the ring part entirely. Right. We're told that he tells a version of the story there and that he leaves the ring out entirely. But of course, it comes out later on after the spiders. Right. When he has to turn himself invisible. So I always assumed that he said that when when. When uh, Gandalf says, which version of the story did he tell you? And Frodo says, not the one he told to the dwarves. And put in his book, I thought it meant like when he told the story of when he told the dwarves. I was a little confused, but I'm like, I guess that kind of works. But this passage here, I didn't get at all. Because like, I'm like, why is he looking sidelong at Glowen? Like, he told Glowen the real story when he, uh, like after the spiders, right after they escaped from the spiders. So, yeah, he lied about it at first, but he already told him, like, it can't be a secret to this day to Glowen. So I was super confused until I finally, uh, until I finally learned about that. Um, but no, he's of course referring to the story, which Bilbo never recanted, uh, officially. Right. Um, so, um, anyway, yeah. Okay. So, uh, like I said, I was confused for a long time about this, um, about this thing. So, 
his preamble here not only sets that up, right? Not only sets up the whole sort of retcon angle there. Uh, and as, as I was saying, yes, it is certainly true that there are many in the in the room who would not know the original story. Um, Boromir, for instance, right? As you're saying, Legolas probably. Um, uh, have the elves heard the old version of the story? Most of the, I mean, has Galdor from the Havens? Does he know Bilbo's story? Probably not. I mean, I, I doubt Bilbo's as famous as all that. Um, but um, uh, anyway, um, uh, yeah, it's exactly right. If you would like to read the first version of the story, go to The Annotated Hobbit by Douglas Anderson or go to uh, The History of the Hobbit by John Ratliff and you can read the original. Uh, it's, it doesn't just give like the complete first edition Hobbit, but you can read the you can read the the original version of Chapter Five um, in either one of those places. Um, yeah. Anyway, so yeah, most of the people aren't going to be so. It's this is clearly targeted at Glowin. Um, I ask them to forget it and forgive me. Um, and then he gives an explanation. I only wish to claim the treasure as my very own in those days, and to be rid of the name of thief that was put on me. Um, the first part of that sentence is like very much to be expected. This is what we've noticed all the way along, right? And also, the level of insight that we were talking about in our discussion of the scene in the Hall of Fire with... Uh, Frodo's perception of Bilbo and, uh, you know, Bilbo's apology, right, Um, to Frodo. Uh, You know, I was arguing there that I think that we can see that Bilbo has now a lot of insight into what the ring does to you, and he can see it, doing it to Frodo. Um, Exactly, yeah, Um, Exactly. Yes, I understand now. Put it away. I am sorry. That's exactly the the moment that I'm talking about there. Um, so th- th- after that, I would expect him to have the insight. I only wish to claim the treasure as my very own in those days. Um, but to be rid of the name of thief that was put on me is a little bit more interesting. Um, and of course, it's first of all, it's conspicuous. Um, the the burglar, right, who was uh, sensitive about being called a thief is kind of funny, right? Um, but it's uh, it's more than just humor, right? I mean, here in, on the one hand, he's kind of pointing back at a pretty significant theme of The Hobbit, Um the theme which culminates in Bilbo saying, you know, to Thranduil and Bard, um, I may be a burglar, though, to be honest, I never felt like one, uh, but I'm an honest burglar, I hope, right? This sort of true identity that Bilbo is uh, establishing for himself, right? This question, this question was asked in chapter one, right? Who is this guy? What is he? And Gandalf asserting, you know, if I say a burglar, then a burglar he is or will be when the time comes. And he is a burglar, but he's not just a burglar. 
uh, howsoever burglarious in the end may be some of his actions and accomplishments, um, in the end he's an honest burglar. Um, and uh, but he is not a thief, right? Does not like to think of himself as a thief. Um, he wants to be rid of the name of thief that is put on him. And yeah, it's Gollum who calls him a thief. He wanted to distance himself from that. So again, that is ex- what that is an explicit reference to is the change in the character. So there, because there are two things, right, that are big, fundamentally different about the original Hobbits, you know, chapter five of the Hobbit and the revised chapter five of the Hobbit. Um, and those are how Bilbo ends up with the ring, like how the riddle game factored into that, right? And secondly, um, the characterization of Gollum, right? Gollum was a... He was cannibalist. I mean, he was planning to eat him, right? He was, he was a, carnor, uh, a carnivore, and unashamedly, that was still going to be what happened to Bilbo if Gollum won. Um, but he was very fair-minded in the first... You know, so we get this... Uh, uh, depiction of Gollum in the first edition text, which is quite fair, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. So he wants to be rid of that name, um, even to clear from his own mind, clear from you know the ears of his memory that horrible final shriek of Gollum's that he heard, the Baggins, we hate, you know, thief, Baggins, we hates it forever. Um, that's, um, that is, as we get that in the revised text, that is, uh, we're told how hard that hits Bilbo. The narrator tells us um, that the shriek really hits him there, right? And that's his last encounter with Gollum. That's what he's left with. Uh, and, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, he seems to want to shake that in some way. So he not only tells a story which solidifies his claim to the ring, to possession and ownership of the ring, but he also tells a version of the story in which Gollum was quite nice and he and Gollum left on positive terms, right? Um, so I do think there's an issue, a pride issue here, Amethorn, in some ways, um, that he doesn't like to be thought of as a thief, that he wants to clear his name. But I think, and this is a, a very sort of indirect interpretation of that sentence, but here's the other thing that I think here. I think this is also Bilbo's pity being expressed. Not this sentence directly, but, like, in retrospect, the first edition text, right? Um, I mean, you could say it's not exactly um, an act of pity to, you know, conceal the horrible truth of Gollum's real situation. Um, But I think that we can still see Bilbo's imagination yet haunted by the insight into Gollum's situation which stirred his pity in the first place, right? Um, That insight which led him to jump over Gollum and run away instead of stabbing him and putting his eyes out. Um, I think that he... um, 
um, um, yeah, I think that he is still is not just offended by his um, by the accusation of thief uh, of being a thief, but is still troubled by the memory of Gollum's cries. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, now, Angrist, I agree that when we talk about um, wishing to claim the treasure as my very own in those days, let's go back to that for a second, because I agree that that is interesting as, you know, Angus saying, you know, he found it, right? Um, he probably should have given it back, but it's not like he bit the ring off Gollum's finger, right? Yeah, it's not like he stole it. He didn't actually steal it. Gollum might call him a thief. It doesn't make him a thief, right? Um, uh, you know, Flamma first says, what's wrong with, with finders keepers? Um, this tells us something, right? Because... Bilbo, the fact that Bilbo does not think that him finding the ring on his own, because, I mean, look, if all Bilbo wants is plausible deniability, he's got it in spades. He doesn't know for sure. Right? Now, you could say, after overhearing Gollum's conversation about the magic ring that turns you invisible, he can feel fairly confident that there probably aren't dozens of those lying around the Misty Mountains, right? So, he does, he does feel pretty confident that this is Gollum's ring. Um, but um but anyway i mean it's it's uh he he found it right um he doesn't does he have to establish the right to keep it um uh yeah i mean there does seem to be at least some discomfort with the fact that he knew full well that the ring this was Gollum's ring. I mean, he 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 knew. He knew. Um and he didn't offer to give it back. He didn't return it to its former owner. Um even when he overheard Gollum saying that Gollum himself had accidentally dropped it. Right? Um right. JD says unless it unless spoons are the things that you happen to find, right? In which case, if you happen to find valuable things that have fallen into your umbrella, for instance, you're not obligated to return those, right? I mean, yeah, I certainly agree, JJ, with your implication that, um, uh, you know, compunctions about personal property uh, are clearly not at the very highest level of Shire moral culture, right? Clearly. Uh, clearly. I can agree, Arnas, that the Sackville Bagginses might be outliers, but I am not at all convinced that in that respect they are outliers. I mean, look at Sancho Proudfoot, right? Excavating holes, uh, you know, in Bag End. Bunches of people are searching for and trying to make off with anything that's not nailed down. Right. Um, think about the people who come in a second time to get an extra present. I mean, there's uh, there's um, 
there's all kinds of examples of the hobbits playing fast and loose with. I mean, goodness, even just think about all the people who hadn't, you know, about the the guy who had returned all the Bilbo's books, right? Um, yeah. So I think that the absolute necessity of returning something you find to its owner, no matter what, it's not the 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 absolute. Uh, bottom line of Shire morality, clearly. Um, um, exactly, Aranas, ill-gotten gains are free for the taking, right? So you could rationalize it that way, right? Yes, this is Gollum's ring, but um, he probably got it in some horrible way, right? So uh, uh, so therefore, it's, it's okay. Um, right, exactly, J.J. was pointing that out, too. Right. Um, now, it wasn't known to be ill-gotten, Aranas, you're right, but but again, if Bilbo is looking to rationalize, he might have rationalized along those grounds, right? Um, yeah, now we know it's ill-gotten, right, that it was, you know, he took it off a corpse, the corpse of his friend that he murdered, right? Um, but Bilbo doesn't know that, right, or have any necessary reason to know that. Um, but um, anyway... Here's the point I'm trying to make, because I think I am trying to make a point at the end of the day, and I only wish to claim the treasure as my very own in those days. Therefore, by Bilbo's testimony here, changing the story in the way that he changed it within the framework of this retconning, right, Um, by changing the story to the first edition text, Bilbo... Bilbo himself characterizes that as claiming it for his very own. And therefore, he seems to imply that somebody could say that he doesn't really deserve it, that it's not really his, um, in some sense, um, if he hadn't changed it, right? Um... Tony, great point that it's interesting that he uses the word treasure and not ring. I only wish to claim the treasure as my very own in those days. And there I think that this is not necessarily an insight into Bilbo. Like, is this a, a Freudian slip on Bilbo's part, like we were talking about some of Boromir's terms, right? Um, uh, a bright ring. Remember when we were talking about that last week? Um, but I don't think so. I think this is Bilbo actively characterizing his old point of view, right? Um, It was about this treasure and him wanting to claim the treasure as his very own. Um, Yes, and Mad Violinus points out, of course, the past tense there. It's not that he he wishes, present tense. I I only wished um, uh, at those times to claim the treasure uh, as my very own. Yes, yes. Um... Yeah. Um, And to be rid of the name of thief that was put upon me. That was put on me. Um, But anyway. Here's... Right. The question of what is and is not eligible treasure um, to claim as your very own... Um, it does evoke the question of the Arkenstone, right? And his claiming of the Arkenstone as 
setting it against his portion, but notice even his um, wording. Bilbo knows from the beginning, right? The very beginning. As soon as he picks up the Arkenstone and puts it in his pocket, that he cannot claim the Arkenstone as his very own, right? Um, what is it that he says when he puts the, the Arkenstone in his pocket? Now I am a burglar indeed, right? He knows that if he's ever been a thief, now is the time when he is a thief, right? Um, but anyway, um, so we do have the Arkenstone question as an interesting contemporary kind of uh, um, uh, sample, right? As like a, as as an interesting comparison point of what claiming something, claiming a treasure for your very own. Um, the the wise wherefores and circumstances under which and means by which you can claim a treasure as your very own the arkenstone ser- serves as an interesting point um in that way right and yes yeah you, you know that where it comes up in the thief in the dark chapter yes exactly green great dragon that's it um so so again to me the interesting question is why this rationalization, right? That it suggests that Bilbo was wanting to claim ownership, a right to the ring, is clear, and that's what he, um, uh, that's what he, you know, says. Um, uh, but why? should he construct that story about claiming it for... So he... And the heart of the story, right? The 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 heart of the story in the earlier synopsis we got back in chapter two is that he won it, right? Um, he, he won the ring. And that, the winning of it, is what in the riddle contest um, is what he, what gives him the right to claim it as his very own. Much better than, clearly that's stronger than Finder's Keepers in his own mind. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, And Son of Saradak, I agree, Isildur claimed the ring for his very own. Um, Yes, he does. I... He also has cause, and he also gives a rationale, right? He also rationalizes the claim in saying that it's a guild for his father and his brother, um, which it's not. That's not exactly how guild works. You don't loot the corpse to get guild. Um, you don't need to loot the corpse to get guild. That is... That's the nice thing about Guild is you get it on top of the loot that you get from the corpse, right? Um, uh, Guild he could extort from Sauron's kin, right, uh, for the slaying of his father. But, uh, but yeah, anyway. Um, so, again, it's, it's not the legal thing. It's a rationalization. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, finding Sauron's next of kin would have been an epic quest. Yeah, I sure would, Zach. Absolutely, I agree. Um, uh, Rowan says, does Frodo ever rationalize getting the ring? Um, No. 
Not really, because he doesn't have to, right? He um, uh, he he inherited it, right? Frodo has the best claim on the ring of anybody. Now, Isildur's is pretty good too, right? I killed Sauron and I looted his corpse. It's a pretty good reason to keep the swag, right? I mean that seems fair, um, but um, I. Uh, you think that his acquisition is fairly clear-cut, Angrist? I agree. I agree. Um, and yes, Tony Frodo is the only one who has it in writing, right? Um, yeah, absolutely. So in one sense, Frodo doesn't need to rationalize it um, because he's been handed uh, an ironclad justification for feeling that he can claim the ring as his very own, right? Um, but... Um, But I wonder. It makes me wonder if that's even part of Bilbo's entire process, right? Um, that is, when Bilbo, what does Bilbo do when he's going to give the ring away? He doesn't just write a will and leave and bequeath it to Frodo. He could have done that with less fuss. What did he do? He threw a party, right? He gave it away as a birthday present to Frodo. That is a present on Bilbo's birthday, right? Bilbo gave the best birthday present ever, right? Uh, Or worst, you know, depending on your point of view. He gave the best birthday present ever, the biggest birthday present ever, uh, certainly, to Frodo at Frodo's coming of age. Exactly. Exactly. And he himself, back in chapter one, explained this. It's what this whole party business was all about, really, he says. Right? Give away lots of presents, and in the end, make it easier to give it away. It hasn't made it any easier in the end, he said. Right? The plan failed, but it was his plan. Think about how that reflects, how closely that reflects the lie that he told, the lying story about Gollum. When he wanted to claim the treasure for his very own, what did he do? He invented a story in which he won it, in which it was given to him fair and square, right? So that he could have an unimpeachable claim. Uh, Nobody could say to him, oh, but you should have given it back. It's not really yours, right? No, he won it fair and square. Mostly fair, and a little bit, and fairly close to square. Um, But um, he makes it easier for it. So when when it's time, when he's trying to convince himself to give it away, he wants to give it away, what does he do? He throws a party, a birthday party, in which he's going to give the ring away as a present, and therefore give Frodo not only the right of inheritance, but also the right of gift, right? Explicit gift on a legitimate gift-giving occasion. A birthday gift, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, okay. Again, this, I think, reveals something about Bilbo's mindset and how 
the transfer, the rightful transfer of claim happens through this kind of giving, this kind of official, uh, a transaction in which ownership is officially passed from one person to another, a kind of rite of passage ceremony almost, right? The first was the riddle game, winning it in the contest. After that, it's clearly mine. Nobody can argue that. Um, and with Frodo, he's going to give it to Frodo. Not only, he, he's going to double it, right? Not only bequeath it to him in his will, but give it to him as a birthday present. And again, what I'm here wondering is if this is not only because it would make it easier for Bilbo, but because Bilbo wants that for Frodo, right? That he understands, Bilbo understands. Even then, on some level, he understood that he had this desire to claim it for his very own, right? So if he's gonna, he's not just gonna leave it in a drawer with a sticky note or something, right? He's not just gonna have Bilbo find it among his effects after he leaves Bag End, right? Um, because if he did that, then there could be some cloud hanging over uh, Frodo's ownership, right? Did Bilbo mean to leave this behind? Is he going to come back and collect it? Right? Is this really Bilbo's ring? And he and Frodo, he Frodo doesn't have a right to it, right? Um, but uh, he doesn't leave that loophole open either for Frodo or for himself, right? Um, because if he just left it for Frodo with the house and the furniture, right, then he too could tell himself he would not have really cut the cord completely either between himself and the ring. Right, he could still be saying in the back of his mind, "Maybe I'll go back and collect that ring of mine one of these days." Right? Exactly, Tony. He, he's, he, Bilbo legally separates himself from the ring. Exactly, exactly. Um, and binds Frodo to it. But which, again, I think he would think not as a burden to Frodo necessarily, but as a as a benefit to Frodo. Um, and so, yes, I do think that that's why Turambar, um Frodo doesn't have to rationalize his claim on the ring. He's the the only, the last person since at least Isildur who doesn't have to do any rationalization, right? Who has a, a pretty good reason for it. Um, so, now yes, the fact that Gollum said that it was his birthday present, that it came to him on his birthday, um, and the similarity of the lies, as Gandalf said, is, you know, Bilbo's lie and Gollum's lie, right? Um, the fact that both of them were trying to cement their claim and uh, uh, rationalize any attempt at illegitimacy in the, um, you know, in the bequeathal, in the in the in the in the, re- the, the reception of the ring, um, is, um, um, you know, there was something else at work. Gandalf concludes as a consequence of that. Um, it is true that the birthday traditions seem to be different. Uh, drag uh, drag Arachne. Um, I, Yes, exactly. And Tolkien addresses this in one of his letters, actually, the, the sort of how Gollum seems to assume that he should receive presents on his birthday. Um, uh, Tolkien wrote a whole letter on this. Uh, you can read it in the Humphrey Carpenter letters collection, actually. Um, but, um, yeah. Um, good, Torenbar, I see your, your clarification that you're wondering if Frodo's not having to make a rationalization in fact lessened the ring's hold on him in some sense, since it, like, it didn't have to work on him in that way. 
I don't know if it lessens the hold necessarily. I mean, it, it in one sense, it gives it an easier peg to hang on, right? Um, the others have to kind of bend over backwards, Gollum especially, right? Um, you can keep trying to convince yourself that it's a birthday present from Diego that you took from his cold, dead hands, but, uh, you know... That takes some doing, right? You've really got to put yourself into a, twi- into a twist to convince yourself that that's the case. Um, with uh, uh, with Frodo, you know, you've not have you don't have to go so far. But I'm not sure that that necessarily makes it less gives it less of a hold on you. If anything, it makes it a little bit easier. Perhaps I don't know, um, but. Um, yeah, would easier to rationalize mean easier to give away? Maybe. I mean, he certainly has a role model in the giving it away, which is a big deal. But, um, uh, yeah, 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 I don't know. I don't know. Um, uh, maybe it affects them in the sense, as, you know, as Sarah is saying and as uh, Turambar is suggesting, you know, if you're if it if the ring first prompts you to bend the truth in order to cement your claim, then it establishes its relationship with you on that footing. And that is like what Gandalf says about Bilbo's pity, right? About how, you know, Bilbo took so little harm from the ring because his relationship with the ring began with pity instead of murder. Um, so in that sense, yeah, that um, if you've got to rationalize, if you've got to twist the truth in order to uh, rationalize, to justify even to yourself the possession of the ring, um, then it it puts your relationship with the ring on shaky ground from the beginning. Even though Bilbo's ground is much less shaky than Gollum's, uh, nevertheless, it, it's still parallel in that way. And so maybe that gives Frodo a kind of moral advantage? Possibly. I mean, that argument makes sense to me, certainly. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, as Valori says, Bilbo wanted a claim on the ring, and uh, and that and in that lie, the ring claimed him. Yeah, yeah, um, and so therefore the ring has less of a claim over Frodo, in that his possession of the ring is perfectly legitimate, right? Uh, perfectly legal. Um, I can get behind that reading, definitely. Um, Okay. But perhaps I understand things a little better now. I love the perhaps, by the way. Um, we talked about the insight that he seems to have, and, and, and I, I think it's fairly significant. Um, but he's not arrogant even about that, right? Perhaps I understand things a little better now. It's a very gentle way of um, both of confessing the lie that he told before, right, and apologizing for that, um, but also still being humble as well. Um, yeah. Anyway, this is what happened. Um, this is my, do we have time to do a second slide face? Uh, I think I'm going to not do a second slide tonight. Um, not just because it is already starting to get a little bit late. <laughs> but yes, I, I suspected that would be your opinion, Dorward. 
but also because I just did the State of the University right before this, so I've actually been talking for three and a half solid hours, uh, in truth. Uh, so my voice is not going to thank me if I extend too much longer, and we still have the field trip, so I should probably... Uh, I should probably stop sooner rather than later uh, before I lose my voice entirely. Um, but um, yeah, the next slide, of course, is going to be the sh the uh, the, the uh, highly expurgated version of the Hobbit, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, Sam! I, Sam is asking how many of these classes have we actually managed to get through all the pre-planned slides. Um, I, I, I have a strict policy of no longer pre-planning slides for exactly that reason. Um, uh, what I do is I try to have several slides in advance. So I'll show you how far I went, right? Um, uh, I was not too ambitious tonight, right? I, I, I had this slide prepared and the next one, which is The Hobbit in Brief, right? And then one more, uh, which is um, uh, Frodo's version of the story, right? So I, I had slides prepared for right up to, I still want to know a good deal, especially about Gandalf, right? Uh, but that's it. That's it. Then I have the, back to old passages that I've kept in case I want to go back to them in, in conversation here. Um, usually I have four or five, maybe six, uh, just, and, but usually that'll last me weeks, of course. So, um, yeah, just because y you never know, right? But I figured three was safe. Turns out, pretty much nailed that. Uh, absolutely correct. Um, <laughs> but anyway, um, uh, excellent. So we'll we'll resume with uh, the unnarrated. That is, we don't get the dialogue, right? We just the narrator is going to tell us about. Bilbo's story, and then tell us about Frodo's story. And so be that's one of the things that I'm going to be most interested to see in our discussion next week, is how does the narrator characterize the telling of these stories that are not, in fact, retold in full, right? Um, so there we go. You're right, Zach, I will have to make a head start on slide for the benefit of my heirs uh, some, uh, someday. Uh, you're right, that would only be uh, kind of me. Um, definitely. Um, all right. Very good. <laughs> Very good. Okay. Uh, so I'm going to, I'm going to say goodbye to the folks on Twitter. Now my Twitter stayed up the whole time, though it flicked a few times. Not sure what's wrong with the app, but anyway, uh, and I'm going to say goodbye to the uh, folks on the talent and we're going to switch over to Twitch exclusively here. Excellent. And we will, there we go. There we go. And we will head back to Angmar for our field trip. All right. Okay. There we go. They're right, though. You really should be thinking, what kind of Twitch channel are you leaving for your sons? That's it. Yeah, exactly. I got to have this. I got a pretty clear pattern uh, created here. Absolutely. All right. Good to be back in game. Absolutely. So... Let's meet up at Gathforthnir. Alrighty. And I forgot that um, I could just do this. <laughs> I don't even have to go to the Stable Master anymore. Because <laughs> I bound myself to the milestone. Woohoo. Alright. We'll give people a few minutes to 
ketchup by stable. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think we can we start we can start outside by the stable master. I'll still head out there. Um, because we're we're done inside, and we'll. Uh, have I selected a, a, a literary heir? Well, of course, you know, a lot of people joke about my son Matthias taking over someday. He's already started his own stream, so he's into this kind of thing. And I certainly, I will say, I don't know if he's going to end up as a professional teacher, but he certainly has, uh, I, I certainly see in him a lot of these same characteristics that uh, uh, that I have and a lot of the loves that I have. But I'm not sure he's going to be a Tolkien guy, though. I'm really not. I am wondering, what is this shaft of green oh. light? Oh, sorry, that's a beacon. They just showed up in my inventory, and I'm trying to get rid of them. And, but oh, it makes okay. a great uh, come meet us over here kind of thing, doesn't it? I see. Right. Well, no, I mean, I, I was I, I was like, I thought it was the mothership or something. I was, I was yeah. very confused there. Okay. So that's an item? Yeah, yeah. Just, uh, it's called a dwarf candles. Presumably like the dwarf candles spoken of at the fire oh. so. so it's like a firework thing. Yeah, I think so. Although it does look more like you're you're being yeah. summoned. Yeah, my goodness. Does or it, just pull the sword up? out of the like, stone or something. Right. Yeah. You know, there, there should be music associated with it. Yes. There, we actually do use them in the music community very often. For spotlights, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, no, the, yeah. Do you have to have pyrotechnics guys? Like a guy in black who's just running around setting fireworks and stuff? Well, no. Um, what we normally have are um, uh, folks who will like light those candles behind the band to kind of illuminate them from behind. Yeah. Uh, so it's got and they're actually they don't cause an, as much lag as fireworks. But it's like you got roadies. Yeah, no, it's pretty cool. You got. I've never seen this ever before. I've never. Me neither. Been... They are taking up so much room. First experience. Thank goodness I got that. Uh... Do I have these? Okay, so Narnian has never completed a quest in his life, except for the ones to get past the statues. It was the only quests I think he's ever completed uh, after he got through the intro area. Um, so I've got like this is like the inventory of someone who's never done anything with his inventory uh, since that time. <laughs> Just like a How bunch of presents I received. Uh, completely I've got a whole bunch of unopened boxes and things. Um, but, there should uh, be a new title in game called Horde of the Rings, and when I mentioned that on uh, Jerry's show last week, he laughed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, oh man, I want that I one. Think, let's see, wait, what's the, this is a bucket of, that's the anniversary fireworks, okay, that's different. Yeah. Anniversary yeah, fireworks from, I'm not sure how many years ago. Um, this one is a Hobbit firework. Right. Okay, yeah. I, don't, I don't know that I have any of those. Maybe they're in one of the boxes that I haven't opened. Oh, Look, I've yeah, got, a, got a white tree now. Oh, that's right. I'm I've got nine. my three-year gift box and my four-year gift box and my five-year gift box all unopened in my inventory here. There's the white tree. See, this is all just to show. See, I really that's don't. Uh, I really do not quest with this dude. He is just a. He is just a teaching character. And he is adjusted to that life. That's right. That's right. Okay. All right. Let us. Is it just me, or is it darker than usual? Uh, it's it's kind of dark. It's usually the sky would be kind of like a bruised colored. 
Yeah, well, it's the late watches of the night, so it's the darkest hour before dawn, I suppose. Uh, oh, yeah, it's because we're here earlier than usual. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Um, but, um, all right. So let's, uh, <laughs> maybe the dwarf candle killed my night vision. Very possibly. Yeah. Very possibly. Okay, so we were down in Himbar... And we uh-huh. wanted to do wanted to do some more investigation down there. So let's get back to where we were near the Cargool. I'm um, mm-hmm. riding the wrong way. That's just the wrong. Oh no, path. it's down so here, Corey. Happened to be pointing yep. up that hill and was like tally ho. And this is the way we need to tally ho. Okay, <laughs> there we go. I, I I discovered my error fairly quickly here. Okay. Yeah. Um. So. Yikes! In a way. We are. We were. I was particularly interested last week. In the um, the, the relationships between uh, the oh I've forgotten their name again uh, the Trave Duverdine 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 yeah right um, hang on I'm going yeah. around a different way now but that's okay right isn't this doesn't this loops around to the uh, place where I we think were we last time follow the path it loops around yeah we, do, we yeah. don't go into the spider's cave i won't go in the spider's cave yeah. no i want nothing to do with bogbereth or any of her ilk the oh look, so these elk. are these spiders being trained are they in the are they yeah, in the yeah, pit because the... they've been bad spiders or <laughs> that's that's their night night pit yeah. Okay, yeah. These are the tamers again. So right. This is the yeah. yes. Yeah. We were here last week. Right. It's not. Is this the same one? Yep. Same one. Are you sure? Uh huh. Oh right. Okay. Right. Good. I thought this was a different one. Okay. In which case, down here and to the left should be that village, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah, more or less. Yeah, here we are. Okay. With the cargool. Right on. Okay, right. There's the cargool right over here. Got him. Okay. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Oh, goody. We've got a roving threat. Uh, yeah, there's one that always comes out around here. Yeah, somebody let me know if we get proximity warning there. Hang on. I don't did, think, they... did we look at the statue here? I was I, just going to say last that. Weekend. Was that there? I noticed it last week, and I got distracted. Yes, There's it was there. No I was going to bring it up, and then really? something else. I think we noticed the farmers, and that distracted me. Yeah, you're I right. Forgot. I ran right past and looked. Through. I can't even believe that. Because, oh, well, my look, goodness. Agriculture. What a, <laughs> yeah. What a rich piece of evidence this is. Yep. Because this is the same statue, right? The classic semi-anthropomorphic Sauron statue with the red eye in his face. And a nice hat. Right. And the and the robe of swords, right? Yep. Um, Ouch. With the little mini skulls. This is the yep. same statue we first saw, I think, in Fornost, if I remember correctly. Um, there are a bunch of yes. these in Fornost. I'm pretty That's sure. That's right. Yeah, um, made by, like, I thought we were supposed to assume they were made by goblins or something, but... Yeah, it looks very goblinish. Um but see, so because we've seen it in other places, in other places where the trade Duverdine are not, uh-huh. I am concluding that this was, sorry, a fracas seems to have broken out. Oh, it was the troll. Yeah, well, they, they do that. Um, they had it coming. Uh, he did have it coming, I agree. He richly deserved what he got. Um, but um, 
one possibility for this statue, right, is that this statue was raised by, was created by the Trave Duverdine, right? That this is like, they've made this like little totem to Sauron here in the midst mm-hmm. of their village because this does look like their, no, this is not like the Trave Duverdine village. This is the Hillman's village, the Angmarin yes. village. But anyway, but they're like, hey, look at their standing guard right here, right? And then you've got the, You've got the lady, what is her name? The blood seer, right? Yep. The one who sees blood, and then you've got the guards, what are they called? Oh, they're called X whatever they were. This that is an X guard, apparently. But anyway, um <laughs> uh Right, so you could argue you could theorize oh wait, wait a protector, that's what they were called. I'm looking in my uh my text over there. They were called mm. Duverdine Protectors. Protector. Um, so, one could speculate that this statue was built by them, but I don't think so. Because although we saw plenty of Angmarim down in Fornost, I don't think we saw any of the Duverdine down there, right? Hmm. No. You know, this, the, you know, this particular culture? I don't think so. So, ergo, I conclude that this statue is not a statue made by, um, like, you know, from within the, um, the culture of the Duverdine. It's outside the culture, right? So, who then built it, and why? Is this part of the Angmarim culture that was imposed upon the Duverdine? Well, no, I don't think so. Because when we come over here, we see... Mm-hmm what their culture looks like, right? This is what the Angmarim are like when they're at home, right? Yeah. They want to build a little sanctum to Sauron. This is what it looks like with a nice altar with a shiny uh, iron crown. instead of pretty statues. Right. They're not interested in statues, even statues of questionable prettiness, right? Um, they're into blood sacrifices on stark-looking altars with cool, glowy uh, crowns on them and blue flames flanking them on either side, right? This is their kind yep. of thing. Um, yep. Not that over there. So, if this is not something that's native to the Duverdine culture, and it's not something that is an organic part of the Angmarim culture, where then does this come from? Right? It does look like it was built by goblins. And that was certainly our very plausible theory when we came across it in Fornost. Right? That this was an orc construction. Um, And it may be an orc construction or it may be modeled on the orc constructions. So here's my theory. My theory is because the only like orcish creatures we've got are the trolls, and I don't think the troll made this under any circumstances. Trolls do not build, and that probably goes for statues as well. Keep in mind, we are outside Karndoom. We are outside of what? Karndoom. Karndoom, right. Yes, exactly. So there would be orcs available. I'm not saying you couldn't import an orc and ask them to construct one of their, you know, natty statues of Sauron with the swords. But um, here's my theory. My theory is the Angmarim commissioned this statue in a style that they thought would suit the Duverdine. I think that this reflects the insulting attitude uh, of the Angmarim for the Duverdine, 
saying like, oh, they're like primitives and savages, right? So they'll probably be into the same kind of crude sword-bearing totems that like the orcs like. So one of them had seen these before that the orcs made and were like, oh yeah, let's have, uh, let's, uh, let's whip up one of those. That'll be just the thing for the savages. Right. Uh, uh, that's, that's interesting, and it just actually spawned a different idea in my head, but similar. But similar. Okay. You commission orcs to do this when you want to get them out of the way. <laughs> it's a way uh, as a way of controlling the orc population. Or no, so. not just possible. Well, that's a that's a drastic measure for the population, but it's yeah. more like, a, look, we're trying to set up a shelter right now. You guys are just getting in the way. And you know what? Make a shrine to our beloved leader. Go. Right, do it. Right, right. Don't, Maybe so. Don't stop until it's perfect. <laughs> right, right. Maybe so. But now... That's like, so, this is like something I would make my kids build if I'm trying to get them underfoot, uh, out from underfoot. Hey, everybody, let's go get some oatmeal <laughs> drums. <laughs> right, right. So, where did we end up at the end of last time? concerning uh, the relationship between the Angmer, because it doesn't, I mean, the first thing that struck me, and the reason I, like, did not even literally notice this statue last week, was I was struck by the fact that the Angmer are working in the fields, which suggests that they're not, to, and then you've got her standing here under the tent, like she's in charge, right? I mean, she looks like the foreman here, right? Yeah, she looks I, like I think the boss we determined lady. I think we determined there was ranking involved like the the ones in red are actually not in charge the two are they're they're the acolytes the minions right the, these guys over the, here menial tasks while yeah. you know the the big hoity-toities under the alt the awning with the altar who's probably the guy taking orders directly from the cargo right. and then there's duverdine higher up the ladder who are rank higher than the minions who are overseeing them yeah, yeah. So it's, it's symbiotic. Right. But that the appearance of supremacy by the Duverdine is probably an illusion, right? Probably. That probably this guy over here is the guy who's really in charge around here. And uh-huh. he. so would he have commissioned the statue? Maybe. Um. Possibly, but, but that also explains the protectors. The protectors are not protecting the minion; they're protecting, they're protecting this. Uh, the bloodseer, iron crown priest. Oh, they're protecting they him over there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or maybe they could be an honor guard for her, right? So that this is yeah. the Angmarim basically playing nice or seeming to play nice, right? Mm-hmm. Um, As it suits them, right? Uh, with these allies, but they at the same time are and right and that guy who just got killed, right? He's walking the path here, right? So yeah. we we had him as a as a, okay. He's one of the guys who's probably in charge, um, mm-hmm. and you've That's got the Gorthor minion here. The he's Goth, just a Goth, crossbowman. Uh, he's nobody. Goth. Yeah, there we go. Right, that guy. Yeah, he's one of the he's one of the red shirts. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Literally. Yeah, in this case. Okay. All right, and there's... So that's right, and that's where we got. We got over here to the Merivile. This is right where we finished last time. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's right. We were looking at all the Merivales. Yeah. And this was the approach to Doom, so we decided we weren't going to go up here yet. Yeah, yet. Right. Okay. All right, here's another... 
couple of these guys just standing around. Just a protector. Yeah, and another blood lot of blood seers. And then down, mingling with the Maravale, but right, kind of petering out as we get deeper into the Maravale setting. Okay. Here's one of the tents, which certainly does look like a native sort of Treve Duverdine tent, right? Yep. Yep, the orange slices and the colors. Yeah, the orange slices, the spears. Um, Yeah. And now we've got the road up to Karn Doom. And even from here, we can see at the first turning stage of the road to Karn Doom, one of the evil, the, the somewhat evil Tudor houses, right? The slightly evil Tudor houses. Um, <laughs> and so, therefore suggesting that this older population, right, this older sort of traditional population of the area, the hillmen, um, and we don't really see any of them, right? I mean, uh, there's the Duverdine, really. but I don't think, the Duverdine are a different culture. I mean, yes. the Duverdines, I mean, they are this one, Right. These hide pavilions also presumably are theirs because we mm-hmm. saw hide stitch together uh, in this way, um, in unless a similar way. Using anyway. these, uh, unless these houses are old, I, I, these houses look like they were old and abandoned and are now being reoccupied and repurposed. Yes. Yeah, I think the native population, that is the population who built these houses the slightly evil Tudor houses. Um, I, I agree. They seem to be gone. Uh-huh. They seem to be gone. And we're not getting anything from the Duvardine in here except the occasional pavilion, right? Uh-huh. Under which the Angmarim priest S is, is worshipping here, right? Yep. Um... What's hanging from the rope? What's that? Never noticed that before. Much This stuff. These metallic oh. items. Oh, uh, yeah, I think we've seen those. Yeah, they're like, uh... Just... Things of note. Right, like, Status um, symbols, probably. Yeah. Huh. Right, some kind of baubles or something. Yeah, that's what it looks like. Um, okay, so hang on. Does this suggest that um, the construction of this Angmarim altar underneath this pavilion is a piece of cultural imperialism on the part of the Angmarim? Or are we to believe that the this style of pavilion, which we thought might have been Duverdine, is instead... In fact, Angmarim. I'm not sure. I'd have to go back to Anumanist and see what the shrines and altars look like there because there were some erected uh, outside of Evendim. And, uh, yeah, and the orange slices, the orange slices, we saw that in Algair. I mean, that does seem to be... Mm-hmm. And know, outside of uh, yeah, Angmar and Osteldin. yeah. Right, right. But, yeah, 
Well, we'll have, I'd have to see. I'd have to compare it to what I've seen in the Numinous. In the North Downs, we did see the remnants of the Hillman culture, like the original culture, which mm-hmm. allied itself um, to Rudauer, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yep. And came under the sway of Angmar when Angmar was populated, so that we had we always had in the conception of the Ang of the of the of of the of, of Angmar, you know, we had the Angmarim culture, right? The sort of intrinsic Angmarim culture that is the really evil stuff, right? Was the followers of the Witch King. And those are that that's the priestly cast here, right? Yes. They are the, the sort of sorcerers, kind of like the. I mean, them following the Witch King are kind of like the sorcerers, the Easterling sorcerers, right? Um, yes. That we see in like the Brownlands and such. Um, so those are, in as much as there is, it's they're not really native to Angmar. They're they're invaders, right? Twice invaders. They were invaders in the old days, and they've reinvaded um, now within the Lotra adaptation story world here. Um, in the old days when they invaded, they, there were, so this culture, the culture who built this slightly evil Tudor houses, um, they were just an indigenous human population, very like to, as apparent from their architecture, very like unto the Brelanders, Right. But they became sway, they came under the sway of Angmar, hence the slightly evil cast to their architecture, um, uh, and the other Angmarim structures that we were seeing in walls and, and fortifications and things as we saw down in the south. Yeah. Now, the Duvardinarths are a separate culture, which I don't think we see reason to find are in conflict with the Hillmen, but I think they're, what are they, newer additions? Have they come? In, are there any of the Hillmen left? Well, they talk here? about ancient rituals that have been done for centuries, like that rock thing. Right. So they and the Hillmen presumably lived here more or less together. Um. Back in more so, than likely, one the Hillmen were here first before the. Yeah. So if we Angmar. imagine, like, um, you know, the culture of Angmar. Prior, like in the Second Age, right? Prior to, you know, before the Witch King was a was a gleam in in Sauron's it was a malicious gleam in Sauron's eye, right? Um, yeah. We had um, the culture of Angmar would have been the Hillmen because if if these guys are connected to the Brelanders, they've probably been here as long as the people of Bree, which is way before. Um, uh, which is yeah. way before any of the Sauron stuff came into the picture. So we would have yes. had these hillmen who made these houses. And we would have had, apparently, by their own account, the Duverdine, the Trave Galorg and the Trave Duverdine, um, as ancient cultures here, one of which has succumbed to evil and the influence of Angmar, as the hillmen before them had done. So... These houses do look old, but they don't look ancient. They don't look several thousand years old. No, they don't. But, you know, these things, I think, are new. 
this. Oh, yeah. The, yeah. These are bright and shiny, and look how clean the carvings that's, are. That's new Angmar all over, right? Right yes. there. Um, yeah. Yeah. This is just what you expect to see in new Angmar. What are they doing over here with this wooden construction? What is this? What looks like a small and highly ineffective oil, de oil derrick? <laughs> looks like it, it was. they're starting to make a watchtower, maybe, right, which watch would be tower. a good place for a watchtower. Look how much it oversees. Yeah. Right? The road for some distance over there. It's a sh questionable uh, shape. But I don't think they're very good at it. No. No, it looks likely to be a failed watchtower. But, you know, not everybody can be good at that sort of thing. All right, hang on. Is there For a priest under this one, too? Uh, probably. Yes. No! Oh, no. Blood? No. Yeah, right. they, they alternate. Yeah. They do alternate. Okay, so somebody is doing some cultural imperialism here. The question is just whom? Right? Who's playing whom? Yeah. <laughs> For suckers. Who's, who, who's if, exploiting if the pavilions of whom, exactly? Well, honestly, I, I think I would not be surprised if the Witch King of Angmar was doing the playing and convinced each side that they were playing the other. Possibly. That's just, that's just seem how, that's kind of how evil tends to work. Okay, and so And then, here... of course, that they, and they convinced both of them that the, that the orcs are none the wiser. Right, so I'm comparing and contrasting. This banner, this is clearly Angmarin, right? It's pretty ornate, yeah. Yeah, so as an illustration of what Angmarim artistic sensibilities are, we have this to go on. Notice the stylized combo crown and, and eye, right? That's kind of... Um, yeah. That's kind of cool, right? Yeah. That's, that, that, that's nice. And also notice how... And I ne never really noticed this before, but like since I'm s standing right here, I kind of can't help but notice how the peaks on the Iron Crown look like the towers of Karndum. Uh, yeah, I can see that. Up on the hill there, right? Yeah, that works. A little bit, right? Okay, so you've got the Iron Crown and the Red Eye in a whole, you know, Angmarim kind of geopolitical context there in the banner. Then the frilly ornate outlines, right? Yeah, as, as, as an artist, I have to state that if you are silk screening or stenciling that onto the flag, you have to, be, you have to pay close attention. You have to be very, very careful to get it right. Yeah. So this is dedication when it is flag. A lot to mess up there, yeah. Yeah. To mess look up. how many of them there are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They had a screen printing shop. Look at this. And it's symmetrical. Yeah. Right? It's symmetrical. It's not a goblin design. Yeah. No, very non-goblin design. Absolutely agree. Um, but also very different in style to this. Right? Yeah. We have bold colors here with the blue, right? And the blue uh -huh. and the kind of catchy orangish border there, right? Um, yeah, yeah. 
Not to mention the bold blue border around the bottom of the, I'm going to call it off-white, looks a little dirty, pavilion, right? Um, But this kind of simple, bold colors and geometric shapes is very much not what we see in the banner, right? Yeah. In the banner, we have clever symbols combined cleverly and symbolizing multiple things, right? Yeah. No, no, that was like a professional artist designed this logo. Like, yeah. You know. Yeah. They hired yeah. some guy. Yeah, exactly. They totally subcontract subcontracted these banners out. No question. Um, but yeah, so this is whereas we get no symbolism of any kind, just geometry and color here. Yeah. There might be symbolism, of course, attached to the whatever those things are that are hanging down. But it doesn't present a United Nation or strike fear into anyone's hearts. It's just kind of pleasant to look at. Right. Is she attacking me? How quaint. Why is she doing that? That's really odd. I don't know what punched her buttons, but... I was just looking at the artistic layout. I do like her shoes, though. Um, Her shoes are adorable. Anyway, um... (laughs) Uh, I'm sorry, they are like the, the little green yeah, slippers. Yeah, no, no, I want the cosplay. I want, yeah, I want with cosplay. the and the the little Love like here. the way that they kind of bunch up around the ankle. It's adorable. I, I think they're yeah, they're, they're really cute. Um, She's killing it. The little pointy toes. Yeah, she she is killing those little green slippers. Um, okay, so just comparing and contrasting the banner to the pavilion. I'm going to say I think that this pavilion is the Duverdine, especially since the orange slices seem to connect it to the Trave Galorg as well. I mean, there are elements that are very similar to what we saw in Algar, which suggests that it's probably that also. It would seem to support that. Yeah. Um, okay. So it's a sign of their alliance that... So it's, don't call it cultural imperialism, call it solidarity, right? When the Angmarim priestess across the street is using one of these pavilions to set up her natty Angmarim bloody altar in, right? Mm-hmm. Um, well, these are also mobile. I think uh, something the Angmarim the, didn't really count on is having mobile units. Right. Something that the Varden would be much more prepared for. Right. Yeah, maybe so. Well, let's let's keep let's keep looking. So we got the banners here still. So okay, so the banners are from the Angmarim, and they're the ones who are guarding around here. The okay, and then here's one of the trave, one of the du, one of the Duverdine. Okay, all right. We're still looking at banners. Now we've got a little uh, bus shelter. <laughs> right? Oh, yeah. It looks like there's solar panels or something on it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. This so here we have one of their shrines box. with the blue f- flames and all built yeah. under a wooden lean-to. Right? Big gap in it. Yeah, not real well constructed. Doesn't look quite orcish. Too few skulls. Oh, this was a lady priest, too. Yeah. yeah. Iron-crowned priestess. 
Yeah. Wonder if the ladies get the lean twos. No, no. The there was the it was a lady in the pavilion across the street too. Hmm. hmm. Okay, where are we here? Okay, so to the left is down towards Imlad Balkarth, and to the right, let's go to the right. I want to see what we can see from over here. What, another what alkaline lake. What do we continue to find? All right, there's another big ugly dude. More green ponds. Don't drink the green water. Okay, and now we do get another quaint little slightly evil hamlet on the hill. It's the weather vanes, or the, the little iron spires on top. Oh, this is adorable. It has another adorable cargo in it, too. This guy flanked by trolls. Oh, this is... Yeah, now this... For a cargoyle, he seems to have a pretty heavy guard. Like, you, you think he is really big and nasty and hard to beat. Right. Right, yeah, no, this is interesting. So, this looks like a compound. Like it was when it was constructed by the Hillmen, none of whom seem to be here. Right? Yeah. You never thought of a cargo as being adorable? I mean, just look at his robe. The little crowns, the little flirty-esque business at the bottom, right? He's pretty dapper. I don't know about cute. Well, okay. From a distance, he's cuter, admittedly. Um, oh, booty, booty. He's coming to get you. Oh, coming somebody. to get you. Oh, somebody go. got him. Okay. That's good. All right. Um, yeah, I think that this looks like... This was definitely some kind of single compound. Yeah. Oh, we can't get through it. Can we get through? Oh, we can get through somewhere. Oh, oh you this. can. Yeah, you can. Yeah. To, yeah. A to the overlook. Oh, fantastic. I was hoping for the, for an over, a nice overlook. Wow. An overlook the... of the ancient culture down in Imlad Balkan, yeah. which is where we I we'll do remember running to. through those. Mm -hmm. That's where they had the library up at the top of the hill. That's it was right. Like guy looking for receipts or something? Yeah, it was pretty it's complicated. Like an accountant. We were all excited, and then it's like, oh no, these are all receipts books and merchant logs. I'm like, oh, he's the IRS guy. Oh yeah, there's the path up the side of the hill. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we can see it from here. This okay. is a pretty sweet view. So this is definitely a barrack slash watch. No two ways about it. Though, right, now perhaps, and we certainly do see it um, being used, you know, as training ground and stuff like that, but um, but originally, to me, this looks like, uh, this looks like the King's Summer Apartments, you know? Yeah, yeah, I could see that. On the hill. I mean, we have to imagine it, you know, before, uh, you know, Angmar was infested by evil. Imagine a nice bright sunshine. Um, we have very few clues as to what their society was like. We really don't. Yeah. Um, we don't know what kind of government they had, what, what had their main source of income in this area. Is. Like, do you farm in land like this or something? Well, but I don't think it was always like. I mean, the sky tells you that it's been blighted, right? 
Yes. We've got some definite desolation of evil happening here. So, you know, I don't know. I mean, the valley down there looks like, I mean, those tombs were always there. I mean, at least they're certainly were long there long before these houses were. Yeah, um, that's old. Uh, but still, it might have been a it might have been a lovely valley even with the tombs, right? Back in the days. I wonder if it was uh, covered with water like some of these other areas might have been. Right. Yeah, well, we Brandon, yeah, that some of these right, Brandon, I think that they, they might have farmed slightly evil crops um, back in the day. Um, now, like of course, kale. only <laughs> kale. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's all hairy and nasty. I hate kale. Yeah. Um, dude, that guy is shooting me, too. That is so rude. Um, Does he know who we are? I know. Thank you, Rithra. I appreciate that. Uh, getting that guy off my back there. Um, I just, yeah, I'm surprised they're aggroing me. I don't know why they would be. Huh. Anyway, yeah, so clearly there's not much farming going on. And again, as witnessed by the fact that all the farmers are gone, it's just, unless, you don't think, do you? You don't think that that's what the red shirts could be. Do you think the red shirts could be the descendants of the hillmen? Um, like I said, we, we have no indication of whether they and the, the high priest are the same one. I, I had that theory last week, actually, that they were rounding up young, young deluded Tillman and uh, radicalizing them to be minions. Right, right, marksmen and whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I do stand by that, because there's no way you could get this many guys in one call. A lot of just really young single men. (laughs) Yeah. They gotta be like kidnapping him, stealing him, brainwashing him from other places. Presumably, the warriors and archers here. There you go. I'm trying to see if that design at the back of his, at the nape of his neck there is. Pictorial, but I don't think it is. No, I think it's. But notice he's got a lot of uh, little status symbols, like what we've seen on the edge of the tent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Huh. There's a cargo. Oh, roller skating on it. Yeah. <laughs> they always look like they're roller skating. <laughs> I like the oh, wrist jewels things he's got going on there. Mm-hmm. It's a little Fitbit. Yeah, it's a little Fitbit. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Right, so... The Hillmen were gone. I can't imagine they've been exterminated. Um, the Hillmen have died out from here after the old Angmar and then when the new Angmarim came they've taken over these compounds and villages and they've brought along their new question mark allies the Trave Duverdine um hmm. I think the Hellman could have fled in somewhere and then come back I wonder I mean we saw perfectly healthy populations of hillmen who had been living in houses like this 
down in the North Downs, just south of the border, as I said. Um, but maybe these, maybe those who are in the North Downs now are the descendants of this, like, the parent culture, right? So, like, Karn Doom was the original home of the Hillman culture, which has been taken over. And we got another perfunctory Sauron sculpture. Yeah. Oh, I think that all pretty much works. I think that works. Um, all right, let's... We should go soon, but let's head back out to the... Let's loop back around, because I think we're mostly done with the non-Karndoom areas through here until we get down toward the Balad Gularon. Yeah, I think that's our last place to explore. Yeah, just banners and green lakes. Right, and there's the wooden lean-to, the wooden bus shelter. Okay, we're coming to another intersection here. Oh, what is this intersection? The intersection isn't on the map. That one goes into the Dead Valley, I think. Hmm, maybe. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, you're right. It's not on the map. Weird. Yep. Yep, that's the Dead Valley, all right. Yep. And then we get past that and we can go up. Hmm. When we get to the fork, we go to Ballad Coolera. Right, hmm. okay. So no more villages. Okay, now we get here and we get another sort of intersection. Oh, that's a fun little overpass. Hmm. Angmarim Archway. Leading to where? Where on earth are we? Okay, we just headed up randomly into the woods. Yeah, you kind of did. This is just oh, going to be. Oh, we're back with the Maravels. This is going to be an overview, right? Uh huh. Oh, the, and this is back. This is the backside of the fishing village. Right. Yep. Okay. What is this gateway about then? Yeah, I've never seen the overhang before. Can we go up here? It's a little weird. Sorry, I'm going to go back to what appears to be the road or what used to be the road. But it looks like it yeah, was a road. Yeah, you can see it like. Yeah. yeah. Looks like part of a road and then it collapsed and then they built this archway or maybe the archway was supposed to be used with the road and then after the. I don't know. What was up here? Just Maybe this one stunty tree? Yeah. Maybe it's the shoring up the sides? Yeah. 
Yeah, kind of does. And another Angmarim statue. Hmm. Yeah, no This way is the first one we saw, it. right? Yes, this was. This is the first one we came yeah. to. Okay. Interesting. All right. Okay, so next time we'll go... Do, should we head down to Balad Gulron, Barad Gulron next time, or should we head back down into Imlad Balkorth? Uh, I feel like we should go Balad Gulron first and then Karndun. Okay. And give people time to get keys to Karndun. Right. Well, I want to. I think I want to do. I think I want to do Karndum last. Yeah. So we need to go back to Imlad Balkorth and back and work our way down into Gorthlad. Um, yeah. Well, I guess we should, let's do Imlad Balkorth because then we can do Balagula and then we can work our way down the eastern side, Balaguluron, and okay. then down to Gorth, Gorthlad and Mythlad. Mythad there. Um, and then we can head out towards the rift. Then circle back to Karndum. Sure. New Regarth. Okay. All right. I don't think I've seen the rift. Okay, I think we're getting the hang of how this worked and how this happened. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing the rift. I've only been to the rift once, and uh, of course I was doing it in the context of a raid, which means there was just no time to, you know, look at architecture. Because I've found that. For some reason, people get real cranky when you're in the middle of a raid and you start looking at the, like, architecture, you know, it was, so I didn't get much of a chance to look around. It was all business, you know. Um, we got to That was the one where it was all fun and games until DMA accidentally killed the Balrog. That was, that was, uh, that was my favorite one. Um... When that night when somebody uttered a sentence I never thought I would read. Oops, I killed the Balrog. Wow. That was fun. Yeah, might be OP. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, okay, cool. So, uh, we'll let us sign off here, and we will head down towards, uh, back down into the Dead City, see what we can finish up down there, because we looked around there a lot. We didn't quite finish it, but that's what we were in the middle of when we finished last time, so we might as well... Um, we might as well uh, finish that up first, and then we'll head down south. Okay, very good. Well, thanks, everybody, for joining us tonight. Thank you, uh, Valori, as always, for joining me on the field trip here. Thank you. Uh, and uh, we will continue next week. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining me on this epic exploration of The Lord of the Rings and of Standing Stone's video adaptation of Tolkien's story. If you are having even half the fun I'm having on this journey, I hope you will consider supporting the project by donating at signumuniversity.org fund.